Welcome into Outkick the Show. I hope all of you had a fantastic weekend. Uh, we had an amazing time Saturday helping to raise money for the Brett Boyer Foundation, uh, dealing with congenital heart disease. They have saved 12 or 13 lives. You may have seen me on Big Noon uh, with Luke Bryan helping to raise millions of dollars for them here in my home city of Nashville, actually the hometown where I live now of Franklin, Tennessee. Awesome time. Thanks to Luke. Thanks to everyone who came out. Uh, Kid Rock, uh, Darius, um, uh, the, the Hootie and the Blowfish, the, uh, the, the whole crew uh, back in the day, uh, Darius Rucker. Um, really, really impressive number of people who gave their time, energy, and effort uh, to help there. I'm going to get to college football in a minute. I'll give you all my hot takes on uh, Penn State, Ohio State on Tennessee, Alabama on what we learned and more from the weekend that was, including, spoiler alert, my belief that Michigan has clearly established themselves as the best team in college football so far through eight weeks. But I got to start off the top here again. Uh, by the way, I'll be here all week, uh, so I will not be on the road. You'll get a full week of, uh, of outkick shows um, and uh, as we roll into uh, what is soon to be Halloween. Uh, but I got to say this uh, right off the top. And this is important. Uh, I'm 44 years old. You guys know that. Um, I, I've been publicly engaged in the work that I do for, for 20 years. I think I published my first article in 2004, I guess technically 19 years. Um, so I've been out there uh, sharing my work and, and fighting uh, in the trenches of, of the internet initially, now on radio, TV, uh, and still on the internet. Um, and it's interesting in those 20 years. Uh, 19 years to be specific. Starting to get out now, and when I go to games, uh, meet college kids, they're sometimes born in the 21st century. There are kids who will graduate from college this year who were born after 9-11. Um, and I'm not claiming that I grew up in some incredibly difficult world. I was born in 1979. I think the America I grew up in in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s, like a lot of people who were around my age, I think we grew up kind of in a perfect era. Um, and then 9-11 happened. And prior to 9-11, I think the idea that there was profound evil in America was somewhat difficult for people of my age to understand because... If you grew up in America in the 80s and 90s, yes, you had the Cold War, so maybe you still had a little bit of that understanding of the battle between good and evil. But if you're on the younger side, and I was kind of on the younger side, certainly the youngest, I think, basically, of Gen X, uh, we grew up in kind of an ideal world. Uh, I think I'm one year removed from being a millennial. I'm the oldest Gen X. I would have been the youngest millennial. And... Kids today don't even remember 9-11. I'm talking about not like 10-year-olds, like my kids. I'm talking about kids who are graduating from college. I still call them kids because when you're in college, to me, you're still kind of a kid. Um, and I think it's characterizing the way that a lot of people are responding to what happened in Israel. And let me kind of just take a few minutes here to talk about this because I think these are important conversations that I'm going to have with my kids and am having with my kids but I think a lot of parents and grandparents out there need to have this understanding. There's a poll out there. It says 
basically, if you're under 34 years old, you essentially believe that the Israel-Palestine issue is like a 50-50 issue in terms of whether you can justify what Hamas did to Israel on October 7th. There is no moral equivalency here. You're already seeing the argument start to be made as Israel is stepping up their attacks against Hamas terrorists in, Pal uh, in, in Gaza. You're already starting to see people say, well, see, Israel is just as bad as Hamas is. There is an argument that there is a moral equivalency here. That isn't true. And I, I've seen a lot of people make the argument that the idea of a proportional response is in itself illegitimate because the atrocities perpetrated by Hamas are so evil that in order for there to be a proportionate response, Israel would have to rape a similar number of women. They would have to kill a similar number of babies, infants, young children. They would have to kidnap a similar number of grandmas and mothers and young kids. There is no such thing as a directly proportionate response to evil because evil is so much worse than the response to evil that there is no concept of proportionality. And I think what you're seeing in the United States, I looked at those numbers and I said, my goodness, how could this be happening? How could so many college kids be marching in support of Hamas, uh, chanting anti-Israeli slogans? These are educated kids. How could this be happening? I think what it is, is so many people in America have never experienced true evil that they have a difficulty even comprehending what it might look like. Because if you are 23, 24, 25 years old today, you have been taught that Donald Trump is uh, the equivalent of Hitler. You have been taught that people who want to close the southern border are modern-day fascists. You have been taught that Nazis are people who have differences of opinion with you. And I've talked about this before, but this is important. The grandkids and great-grandkids of the men who stormed the beaches of Normandy and actually fought Nazis now spend much of their time picking up their phones and sending messages on social media that people who disagreed with them were Nazis. And when you have been taught that words are violence, that even silence is violence, that political opinions of people who are on the right are the equivalent of modern-day Nazism, you lack the functional tools to even respond to the absolute best direction historical analogy of modern-day Holocaust that happened on October 7th, when 1,400 Jewish people were slaughtered because they are Jews, it was the deadliest day since the Holocaust for Jewish people. And the people who've been running around saying, 
you have different opinions than me politically, that makes you a Nazi, aren't able to even condemn actual atrocities that are directly analogous to what true Nazis did. How does that happen? Because they've been conditioned, so many of these kids and young people in America, to believe that evil is opinions you disagree with. It is words or even the silence of words, not actual physical violence. Hamas terrorists killed a mother, cut open her pregnant stomach, and slaughtered the baby inside and took pictures and video of them doing it. There are actually people running around on the internet as we speak claiming that none of this happened so that the Israelis had to release videos taken by the Hamas terrorists of the atrocities being perpetrated. There are people online right now who are saying, oh, they didn't actually decapitate all these babies. They just murdered them all. As if that makes you a good person to try and distinguish about the method in which a baby was murdered because that baby happened to have Jewish parents. There is no moral equivalency here. I think partly this is that kids have not experienced evil. I think also there is a rejection in favor of moral relativism of the very idea of good and evil. Evil exists. And evil is most soundly reflected in taking out violent acts against others, taking their lives. Evil is not sharing a different opinion. Evil is murder. It's rape. It's violent attacks upon others that take their life, that take their freedom. And I am stunned by the number of people in the United States that won't condemn outright evil. And I I mentioned 9-11 to start because if you are around my age, I was born in 1979. Yes, there was the Cold War, the battle with Russia, but that was when I was very young. For much of my life, for the most part, evil didn't really exist until 9-11. And it was eye-opening for a lot of people. But what 9-11 occurred was all of America pretty much, there were some small subsets that disagreed, came together. There was no one out in the streets by and large, not a lot of people anyway, celebrating what Al-Qaeda did to America. All over this country, there are people rallying in support of Hamas and Palestine in the wake of this terror attack. I think it should be eye-opening. I think it's a moment that demands moral clarity and conviction. Evil exists in this world, and what Hamas did to those Israelis is the foundation of evil. It is modern-day Nazism. 
It is a stain upon all of human civilization. And it can't be looked away from or denied. And if you are watching or listening to me right now, or you heard me talking about it on Clay and Buck earlier, and you're around my age, or maybe you're a little bit younger, or maybe you're a little bit older, but you have kids, you got grandkids, you have young people in your life, you need to sit down with them and talk about issues of moral clarity. Because there is a subset of Americans, and unfortunately it is quite a large one, that buys into the idea that America is evil and that whatever happened to the Jews was justified based on a misguided reading of history that somehow classifies everyone into oppressor or oppressed categories and then is allowed to justify anything that happens. Any atrocities, any depredations, any acts of war against innocent people based on some sort of misread of history. And I'm a history nerd. I majored in history as an undergrad. America has been so filled with peace and so devoid of actual evil for much of the past generation that the number of people that can even acknowledge evil when it occurs is small, much smaller than it should be in people under the age of 25 in this country. And that's why we need elders. That's why we need older people to be able to talk about what true evil is. And frankly, that's why we have to defeat this woke mind virus, which has created the idea that you can't condemn actual evil and that instead you have to be focused on ideas that you don't like and try to eliminate them from circulation. So here's an idea that I don't like, murder of innocence. It's not a difficult proposition. It's not a difficult situation to condemn. And I'm going to make the pivot into sports now and talk about college football, which is fun, but doesn't seem anywhere near as important. And before I pivot into college football, I'll give credit to the Philadelphia Eagles. And there may have been other teams that did this as well. And if so, I apologize for not having seen it and not having discussed it. But last night I watched the Eagles-Dolphins game. Uh, Eagles got the win. Jalen Hurts beat out to uh, And the Eagles left 10 empty seats and covered those seats with 10 American flags to honor, as we speak right now, the 10 American citizens that are still being held hostage by Hamas. Um, Good for the Eagles for taking note of what remains an issue of true evil uh, and honoring and respecting those that are still in harm's way who are American citizens in Israel. Okay, evil is real. It's important to acknowledge and repudiate it. America is not without flaws, but it is firmly on the side of justice and truth and good and always has been for certainly my life. But I don't think anybody can argue anything in the last hundred years when it comes to America's role in making the world a safer and better place. Uh, All right, pivoting now, much less serious, college football. What do we learn? Uh, Penn State's not ready for primetime. Penn State does not have any downfield passing threat. Ohio State and Penn State both have very good defenses. Here was the difference Penn State has no one approximating the talent level of Marvin Harrison Jr. 
I think, what do you have, 10 catches, 160 yards? He was a huge percentage of the overall game plan for Ohio State. He was the difference. If Penn State had Marvin Harrison Jr., they would have won that game by eight or more points, uh, maybe even more. I think overall, Penn State may be more talented outside of the game-breaking position. Uh, Marvin Harrison Jr., I think, should be a Heisman Trophy candidate. Without him, I think Penn Ohio State, which doesn't have a very good quarterback, doesn't have very good offense overall, would be probably uh, ha- have lost a couple of games because even though he didn't have a huge game against uh, Notre Dame, he opened up a lot of pass plays down the field. Marvin Harrison Jr. won the game for Ohio State. However, having watched that entire game, I think my biggest takeaway is Michigan is head and shoulders above Ohio State and Penn State. I expect now, Michigan is my number one overall outkick team. I expect for Michigan to go on and actually win uh, the the Big Ten, go 12-0, and then win the Big Ten title game, go 13-0, and and uh, be either the one or the two seed in the college football playoff. I think Michigan is head and shoulders above everybody else. Now, there is the ongoing investigation into sign stealing. I don't know what exactly that will end up entailing. I find it hard to believe that Michigan is doing something that everybody else isn't also doing. And unless there is some incredible revelation, for instance, just tossing it out there, if you found out, hey, Michigan hacked into uh, the opposing team's headsets during the game and knew exactly what plays were being called and everything else and relayed that information. Okay, that's a different level of sign stealing. Unless we're getting that kind of level of cheating, Michigan went out and beat Michigan State 49-0. It was not a remotely close game. Michigan hasn't given up more than 10 points against anybody in the Big Ten. And I understand those of you out there saying, well, but Michigan hasn't played anybody, Clay. Ah, They've dominated a lot of Big Ten teams. And they're going to, I believe, beat Penn State. And they're going to, I believe, beat Ohio State. And increasingly, all of the metrics reflect that Michigan is an elite team. J.J. McCarthy is playing at a high level. In fact, he's now the favorite to win the Heisman Trophy. Uh, They are better on offense than Penn State and Ohio State are, and they're at least as good on the defensive side of the ball. Look, Michigan's now on the bye week. Poor Purdue gets Michigan coming off of a a two-week prep, and then Michigan goes to, I believe I've got the schedule right, they go to to Penn State. Uh, Then I think they play Maryland or somebody like that. And then they finish with uh, with Ohio State. I think Michigan's going to win all four of those games. I think they will go 12-0. and uh, So Michigan, best team. That, that's what stood out to me, uh, watching Michigan against Michigan State and then seeing the Ohio State-Penn State game. I thought Penn State would go on the road and prove they had a different gear and that they were capable of getting past Ohio State. That didn't happen. Now, a lot of people out there are like, oh, James Franklin's overrated. He doesn't beat the best teams. James Franklin's got a top 10 program at Penn State. He doesn't have a top five program. Hasn't been able yet to get it to top five program status. So you can criticize Penn State. I think there's more criticism deserved of the Big Ten East having three really good teams. Penn State's the third best program in the Big Ten. They aren't Michigan. They aren't Ohio State. So if your criticism of Penn State is they should be Michigan or they should be Ohio State, and they have not gotten to that level yet, you're basically saying Penn State being a top 10 program isn't good enough. They need to be top five. 
That's a fair criticism if you believe that should be what Penn State should accomplish. But Penn State's the third best program in the Big Ten. They were not the third best program in the Big Ten when James Franklin took over. So he has solidified them as a top 10 program. I get the fact that narratively, what is frustrating to fans is actually having the same results happen year after year, even if the results are pretty good. If you go 10-2 and and you lose to the two biggest rivals every year, eventually teams get tired of being 10-2. and Heck, Ohio State fans are furious at Ryan Day because they lost to Michigan for two years in a row. And whatever it was, when Jim Harbaugh lost six or seven times in a row to Ohio State, Michigan fans were upset because Jim Harbaugh had returned the program to a higher level, but he wasn't quite able to get over to the next level and beat his elite competitor. We'll be right back. Got to take a little break here. We are rolling without kicking. You don't want to miss a moment. Stay tuned. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So that is my analysis of the top three in the Big Ten. Let's talk about Tennessee-Alabama. Big picture. Tennessee-Alabama is now a functionally even program status. Some people are going to get fired up. They're going to be like, what are you talking about? You go look at the last two years. Tennessee and Alabama have played virtually even games in in terms of total yardage gained. I believe if that game had been played in Knoxville, Tennessee would have won. I don't think there would have been a 9-1 to Alabama advantage in penalties. I don't think there would have been a significant home field advantage. I think Tennessee would have beaten Alabama, and I think they probably would have done it comfortably based on what we saw in the first half. I think that first half performance, Alabama would have faded even quicker, would have been in trouble in the second half, I think Alabama would have lost. I don't even know that very many Alabama fans would argue against me. Tennessee in the first half played as well as Tennessee has played all year and had a 20-7 to lead at the half. Now, there were a bunch of bad calls. There were a bunch of uh, poor decisions that were, uh, that were made by the officials. But at halftime, Tennessee up 20-7. to Game changed. Start of the second half, I think it was a 29-yard run. Next play, 43-yard touchdown. It's 20-14. to And then we got a bad rule, okay? This rule needs to be changed. I also know it was an issue in the Iowa game, uh, but I don't even think that one was as difficult. Tennessee had two men back returning the kick. And uh, the guy who did not return the kick evidently gave what was considered to be the safe sign and the officials blew the play dead. And then the guy who didn't uh, uh, field the kick returned it and took it, I don't know, near the 25-yard line. Uh, You can imagine what the reaction would have been if he had taken it to the house. Nobody reacted to uh, the signal to potentially fair catch it. The rule should be changed to if there is a decision made that a fair catch occurred, 
the ball automatically goes to the 25-yard line, not the four-yard line where the ball was fielded by another guy who never saw the fair catch signal. Because if the other guy catches the ball at the four and doesn't move at all, then the ball would have been put at the 25-yard line. But he doesn't know what the other guy back signaled or didn't signal. It's a loud stadium, and he's looking up himself at the ball. So the guy away from the ball who never fields it shouldn't have the ability to end the play. And if you're going to say that he has the ability to end the play, then the ball should go to the 25-yard line where it would have gone on a normal fair catch. And if you say, well, if he had returned it to the 50, we're going to bring it back to the 25, I would understand it. But it shouldn't be a dead play because everybody was trying to make the, the, the play. Um, worst case scenario, it should go to the 25. That was the swing in the game. Three bad plays in a row by Tennessee. Tyler Barron was uh, absolutely hogtied. Here's the thing on the officiating. Uh, it was awful. And it was all biased in favor of Alabama. Every error happened in Alabama's direction. You get uh, a what I think is a overturn with no justification. When in the first half, it appeared Joe Milton got past the 35-yard line. They review it, and they bring it back to the 34 and a half, roughly. I don't know how you brought it back all that way. And I've been hammering this for a long time. What is the standard for overturning a call? The established standard is a call is overturned on the field when we can 100% tell that a missed call occurred. That is, if somebody makes a catch in the end zone and they actually get a foot down and the call was made that they did not get a foot down, you would overturn that call. There is no human on earth who can watch the replay of Joe Milton diving for a first down and definitively say that he did not reach the 35-yard line. You might be able to say with 60% certainty. You might be able to say with 55% certainty or 68% certainty or whatever it is. You cannot 100% tell me that when his left elbow touched, you know exactly where the ball was in his right arm and you can definitively pull back a first down and move it back to the 34 and a half. Why does that matter? Tennessee went for it on fourth down, got stopped. Later, after an interception, Tennessee's driving the other way. They blow it on whether Tennessee got a first down or not. Joe Milton got his whole body across the line. They had to go review it and fix it. That's a big error uh, by the line judge. And then also they don't stop the ball when he goes out of bounds. Big deal. I think, again... The kick return situation is a totally bungled universe. I've never seen that called in that scenario to force the team to take the ball at the four. Alabama didn't get called. One of the most penalized teams in college football, Alabama is. Alabama didn't get called for one defensive holding or one offensive holding. That is one time protecting their quarterback the whole game. Are you going to legitimately argue that they never defensive held or never held on a pass play for the entire game. That's what the officials said based on the way they called the game. Third quarter, maybe it was late in the third quarter, early fourth quarter, I can't remember exactly. Tennessee gets held on defensive, uh, gets called on defensive holding on third and long. Ball is airmailed out of bounds by 20 yards. It's not a penalty. Can't call that play. Alabama fans are going to say, what about when, okay, Tennessee tried to punch the ball out, player still up in the air. There wasn't a uh, foul called there. Your argument is it should have been 10-1 to instead of 9-1? to 
This is an embarrassing performance by SEC officials that had a monumental impact on the outcome of the game, period. My issue with officiating in general, we saw it in the game between the Colts and the Browns when there was an awful uh, uh, pass interference called judgment calls. We saw it in the game in the NFL uh, with the uh, roughing the passer that was called when Jalen Hurts lightly gets touched. Maybe you should say you shouldn't touch him if you're the Dolphins, but it's not a roughing the passer. It was no like major uh, injury that occurred. Okay, my issue is not with officials when they go and they have to decide, hey, was a knee down or a fumble or not? Let's go review whether somebody got two feet down. Those are situations where there's 100% a right call, right? You can go see, presuming you have decent uh, video footage, whether somebody got two touchdowns down, uh, two feet down. You can go see uh, whether somebody fumbled the ball or not. I don't have a problem with officials going to check those issues. I have a problem with judgment calls. I legitimately believe you can call illegal contact on every play with uh, defensive backs in the NFL. I think you can call defensive holding on every play in the NFL. I think you can call offensive holding on lots of plays. When officials decide to make judgment calls goes to the very heart of deciding games. I think if there had been an accurately officiated game in Tuscaloosa, the outcome may well have been different. Now, I think Josh Heupel made some aggressive plays. He went 0 for 3 going for it on uh, on fourth down. The next to last time that he went for it, he got bailed out um, after they took away the first down in the first half. Tennessee got an interception, came back down the field and scored. Uh, but if you look at the decision in late in the third quarter, I think it was, uh, fourth and short, Tennessee could have punted, could have put Alabama inside the five-yard line. I think that probably would have been the right play. Maybe the outcome of the game ends up different there. But big takeaway, Tennessee wins that game if it was played in Knoxville. Uh, and I think Tennessee will beat Alabama next year. The Tennessee and Alabama teams are functionally even as programs. That's a big step for Josh Heupel. The question for Josh Heupel is, Tennessee's won, I think, 13 games in a row at Neyland. I think Tennessee, and some of you are going to say I'm crazy, I think Tennessee will beat Georgia in Knoxville on November 18th. I think they will. Um, and some of you out there are going to say, oh, you're crazy. No, I think Tennessee has proven that Tennessee is a really elite team at home. They are average on the road. Makes them a good program overall. The question going forward for Josh Heupel is, can he take Tennessee from a good program Good programs win 9, 10, 11 games in a year to a great program. And I think the verdict is out on that. We'll see what happens this weekend against Kentucky. I don't think Tennessee will play great. It's a road game. We'll see what happens on the road against Missouri. Again, I don't think Tennessee will play great. It's a road game. I think Tennessee will beat uh, Georgia. I think Tennessee will win eight or nine games uh, in uh, in 2023 coming off of a 10-win regular season in 2022. That's a sign the program's on a really good track. Can they go from good to great? That's the question. I don't know the answer. Does Josh Heupel have that proverbial next gear to be able to win a championship? And by the way, same question Penn State fans are asking. Good to great. I know Penn State's won a Big Ten title, but do they have the gear to go good to great? And by the way, it can go in reverse. I think Alabama went from great to good. I think Alabama is just good now. Top 10 caliber program, top 15 caliber program, sure. I don't think they're great anymore. 
And by the way, you could go like Clemson has from great to good to average. I think Clemson's an average college football program now. Uh, I, I think that Clemson, what are they, five and six in their last 11 games against FBS opponents? I think Clemson went from average to good to great. Two national titles, Trevor Lawrence, Deshaun Watson, one of the best programs in football. Now they've gone from great to good to average. Clemson is back basically where it has been historically, which is a fringe top 25 program. They had about a six-year bump there where they were incredibly great. Now they're back to average. What's going to happen with SC? Let's go all the way out to the West Coast. Caleb Williams, USC, they lose to Kyle Whittingham, who's done an incredible job with Utah, going on the road, winning at Utah, winning in the way that he did. Basically, has gone back to, hey, we had a, we're winning defensive struggles. That's not good enough. We lose, I think it was 21-7 to Oregon State. We've got to add some more offensive firepower. Boom, they come back. I think they won 36-34. So credit to Utah, one loss team that is still very much in the mix to win a third straight Pac-12 title. What's going on with USC? Lincoln Riley can't figure out the defensive side of the ball. Think about this for a minute. Remember everybody up in arms last year? Brent Venables comes in to replace Lincoln Riley. Lincoln Riley goes out to SC. Caleb Williams wins the Heisman. Lots of big-time transfers. Oh, my goodness, look at what Lincoln Riley's capable of at SC. Year two. Suddenly, Oklahoma looks on a lot sounder footing than USC. Brent Venables and Oklahoma are a better contender for the playoffs this year than last year. The Oklahoma defense, which has been issues under Lincoln Riley for years, suddenly starting to round into a big, tough, physical team, just in time for the SEC. What's going on with Lincoln Riley? He can't ever get the defense figured out. I think it's because he doesn't really care. I think he loves being on the offensive side of the ball, and he doesn't really care or know that much about defense because he feels like, hey, my team's going to go score 45 or 50, I'm that good on the offensive side of the ball that I don't even need to worry that much about the defense. I think it's a form of arrogance from Lincoln Riley. I see Caleb Williams not going to repeat as Heisman Trophy contender, uh, winner. And I saw that some people out there said, oh, you know what, he should just hang it up. Shouldn't play the rest of his season. They're not going to win the Pac-12. They're not going to make the playoff. He's not going to win the Heisman. Why should he play? And I get this, right? Because it was inevitable when guys started sitting out for bowl games and saying, hey, you know what? I'm just going to get ready for the pros. It was inevitable that the question would eventually get asked. Well, once you know that you're not going to win a championship, once you know that you're not going to win an individual accolade, What are you playing for? You're risking a lot for nothing. Now, that argument is harder to make in an NIL era because Caleb Williams is reportedly making several million dollars. So, be fair, that's a tough argument to make. But I do think it's significant 
because it speaks to something that I think Lincoln Riley and I think Jim Harbaugh and I think a lot of college football coaches out there who have potentially NFL aspirations are starting to note. It's this. This college coaching job's tough. Unlimited transfer, basically with no restriction. Constant demands from players to be compensated and to balance out what those compensations look like every year. And simultaneously, you get blamed for everything that goes wrong. You remember Aaron Hernandez? Guy's a serial killer, and he gets paid tens of millions of dollars by the New England Patriots. Do you know how many people criticize Bill Belichick for allowing that to happen? Almost nobody. If you're on an NFL team and you commit a felony or are accused of committing a felony, nobody looks to the coach and says, oh, what kind of culture is he creating? Because you say, you know what? He's an adult. He's got a job. Coach is not responsible for the choices that his adults make. You're in college. You're Kirby Smart. Kid gets drunk, gets a DUI. Kid gets drunk, gets in a fight at a bar. Kid gets accused of sexual assault, whether it's justified or not. Everybody suddenly blames you. Maybe you start looking around saying, I think there's a strong argument. I really do think it at this point. That coaching in the NFL, while challenging relative to the evenness of talent, is actually way easier than coaching in college because the responsibilities are less complicated. You draft a guy, he's got to be with you in the first round for five years if you pick up the option. He can't suddenly decide that he needs to get more NIL money or that he doesn't want to play anymore because he doesn't get paid. If you have a player that decides he wants to transfer, heck, I think it's going to happen. It may have already happened, just hasn't gone public. I think just... Base your, uh, prepare yourself for this. I think a star player is going to walk into the coach's office, maybe a couple of star players. It's say, coach, if our NIL doesn't get re, uh, readjusted right now, we're not going to play against the rival. Just wait. You're going to have guys holding out from big rivalry games, whether they go public or not, during the season. Because we're shifting from a perspective where the coach is trying to look out what's better for the team to where you have 85 individuals on scholarship that are mostly trying to maximize what's best for them. It's a new challenge. It's a new wrinkle. And I don't think it's going to be that easy. But that's what you're seeing now with Caleb Williams. Expectation is we're going to contend for a championship. Once you can't win a championship, why should we play? Now, I think a 12-team playoff will help that because it'll actually expand the number of teams that are able to make the playoffs. But I think you're going to start to see some studs. It's going to happen. Decide that they don't want to play in the playoffs because they're ready to go pro. And suddenly in a 12-team playoff, you might have to play three more games. Going to put more duress on the body. Going to put more risk out there. Football's not easy to play. I'm just telling you, pay attention to it. That is coming as an issue going forward. 
All right. Um, I want to hit you with my top 10. Uh, and then I'll remember we break down the NFL on Tuesday. Uh, but I want to hit you with all my top 10, get everything, uh, get everything out there. Um, and uh, so here is my current top 10 recollection, remembrance. I only talk about teams based on what they've actually accomplished, not what I think they are going to accomplish. Um, and so number one overall team is Michigan. Uh, number two, I have Florida State. I think Florida State's getting overlooked still. That LSU win is back to looking pretty solid. We'll see how LSU does at Bama. I've got Georgia three. Still don't really know what we've got with Georgia. Brock Bowers, by the way, I talked about, hey, if I were a dad, I'd have a serious conversation about whether Brock Bowers should finish. If Caleb Williams were injured, I mean legitimately injured, I think that would be a fair conversation to have. Caleb Williams, you only got like five games left. You've already won the Heisman. Your team's not contending for a championship. If there were a high ankle sprain on Caleb Williams, as a dad, that's a conversation I would have. I would still let the kid make the choice. Um, but Caleb Williams, so far as I've seen, is 100% healthy. I don't think if you're 100% healthy, you have that conversation. Ohio State at four. Got the win. Marvin Harrison Jr. is elite. Otherwise, I don't think there's great offensive playmaking talent. I don't think quarterback's very good. Oklahoma, I've got at five. We talked about Brent Venables and how he's reversed the entire expectation of what Oklahoma football is in about a year and a half. And it's interesting to watch how Lincoln Riley and Brent Venables. Do Oklahoma people feel like they got a bad trade now? Remember how angry they were at Lincoln Riley for walking out? Remains to be seen. But year two, pretty impressive. I've got Oregon at seven as my highest ranked one loss team. Texas at eight, major issues now with Quinn Ewers passing. Who is going to step up at that position for Texas? Does that knock them out of being a Big 12 contender? It's unfortunate to have that injury. Obviously, Oklahoma looks very good to advance. Bama at 9, Penn State at 10. That is my outkick top 10 as I speak to you after eight weeks of college football. SEC power rankings. Georgia's 1. Uh, I've got Alabama two. I've got Ole Miss three. Those clearly are the top three teams in the SEC right now. Then I've got LSU at four, Missouri at five. Think that's the right top five. I think you'll be hard pressed to have any other ranking of the top five two thirds of the way through the college football season. Then this area is a bit of a uh, of a bit of a mess. I've got Tennessee at six, A and M at seven. Kentucky at 8, and Florida at 9. Florida, of course, plays Georgia this weekend. Tennessee plays at Kentucky. I've got Auburn at 10. They just don't have the horses yet in year one with Hugh Freeze. I've got Mississippi State at 11, 7-3 win at Arkansas. It's a solid win for Mississippi State to find. I mean, it's an ugly game, but a win. I also don't know how... With K.J. Jefferson, you only score three points. Uh, I've got South Carolina at 12. Tough year for the Gamecocks as they sit at 2-6. and six. I've got Arkansas, also a 2-6 and six team at 13. And then I got the Vanderbilt Commodores at 14. All right. Uh, I love all of you. 
DBAP, unless you need to SBAP, I will see you tomorrow. Reminder, we'll do a fade. Not a good weekend for college football in the NFL. Last week, very good. This week, not good. I'll have gambling picks up for you, college football. Hopefully, we can do better. Um, those will be up tomorrow. Uh, I'll be here in Nashville all week. Lots of shows. The Fade with Kelly in Vegas will be up, I believe, on Thursday. Appreciate all of you. DBAP, unless you need to SBAP, go check out the Brett Boyer Foundation if you can and have those conversations about true good, true evil, and how it still exists and that words don't represent evil in America at all. Uh, Love all of you. See you tomorrow.